everybody. Welcome to a special episode of Breaking Down the Doors. Joe Rexo and Adam Sparks here. This is the baseball preview episode. Or really, it's the Tim Corbin Speaks episode. When Tim Corbin speaks and you capture it, you need to share it with the world. Adam Sparks recently did. So we're going to, this is mostly going to be Tim Corbin and Adam Sparks talking. But Adam, I want to start with a question for you because Vanderbilt is number one in at least some minds. Why is this team that good? Is this a legitimate number one team in the nation, Vanderbilt baseball? Uh, yeah, on paper they are. Uh, of the six polls or six major polls in college baseball, they're number one, I think, in four of them. That's based on what they have coming back on paper. So they get back their um, whole starting pitching rotation for the weekend. They get back some of their bullpen. They get back really every everyday position player except for Connor Kaiser, their shortstop, which is a big loss. But, you know, you, you get back – eight of nine or nine of ten guys counting the DH. They have the number two best recruiting class in the country coming in. They're just loaded with talent. They've got 40 guys on the roster. You have to trim that to 35, which is a pretty big task because everybody is, in football terms, everybody's a five-star on that team just about. Give me a freshman, if you had to pick one, who's going to make an impact this year. Kumar Rocker. Uh, Kumar Rocker. Which is an awesome name. Yes, he's already on the all-name team. It's a wonderful name. Uh, he's the number one freshman right-handed pitcher in the country. He is the son of uh, Tracy Rocker, who was the Outland Trophy winner defensive lineman at Auburn years yep. ago, was a, uh, a coach with the Titans. He's now the D-line coach at UT. And just, you know, this kid is like 6'5", 250, and throws like 97 as an 18-year-old kid. Again, number one right-hander in the country. They will bring him along slowly because they can, because they have a really good staff in front of him. But uh, he's one. I could name ten, but he's well, and he's, he's got to be the best storyline. You know, the fact that you're Tracy Rocker's son, that you you are probably a kid who could have played football, right? Yeah, and you're going this route, and also that we've got the little rivalry tie-in here with. Well, this. and he kind of more or less turned down uh, seven figures. To, to to come to Vandy. I mean, he was a mid-first-round pick, if not early first-round pick. So, you know, that's uh, they've got a lot of those guys on their on the roster, but but he certainly won. Yeah, that's fascinating. All right, so give us a little preview of what we're going to hear from you and Tim Corbin here. Yeah, so Tim, well, from Tim Corbin here. Yeah, exactly. Well, t- Tim Corbin, we had a conversation in his office the other day. Here's the best teaser I can give you. Tim Corbin is a very, very interesting guy. Tim Corbin's childhood hockey team, led him to coach baseball. Tim Corbin thinks his wife would be a very good baseball coach or evaluator of coaches. Tim Corbin talks about Brad Stevens, the Celtics coach, and Kyrie Irving in this conversation. And how did a sports talk radio host cause Tim Corbin to get a speeding ticket out of rage is how he explains it. That that and a whole lot more. And, and uh, here's a conversation I had the other day with uh, Vanderbilt baseball coach Tim Corbin. Here with uh, Tim Corbin in the, what are we, the third floor? Is that right, of the office? Yeah, it is third floor. Okay, so is this, yeah. the house that, is this the house that David Price built or the house, I guess house that all Vandy alumni built, right? A lot of former yeah. players? Yeah, I, it, David Price might have more of an, a percentage of an investment so, uh, but no, I, I would I would say the the whole group, you know, going back to that 2002 year. So, Tim, I wanted to ask a little bit about this season, but I think I want to go more into the past, mm-hmm. way back in the past. When, uh, how good of a player were you? When did you play? How far? How far did you play? I was coaching at age 21, so that 
that the guy tells you right there, and I went to a Division three school. Ohio Wesley, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but that was a good experience because it allowed me to play. I want to go to the University of Maine because back then, John Winkin, the Hall of Fame coach at Maine, um, they had taken their teams to Omaha several times, and I was a big fan of that. Wanted to go there, but um, could have gone as a walk-on, but the, the likelihood of making it was difficult, so went to Ohio Wesley. And there were some other schools in the Midwest that I that I searched, but that was the one, chose to go, and uh, it was uh, it was a great opportunity from a playing standpoint, but it also gave me my first uh, opportunity coaching, because a guy named Kevin Colbert, who was my baseball coach and also assistant football coach, um, got me involved with the football program, so I was a student assistant right away, and Kevin now is the GM of the Steelers, so I had, uh, had a great opportunity with him. So uh, you were a catcher, weren't you? I started out as a third baseman, second baseman, then my senior year because the starting catcher went down. Um, I I did that, and so I caught the rest of the year. You had the banquet the other night, and sometimes you will introduce players as he's got coaching in his future. Mm -hmm. What do you? Well, if you backed up to then and you looked Mm -hmm. at yourself as eighteen, nineteen year old, what was what was in you then that your coach could Mm -hmm. have then said he's going to be a coach? I just think a lot of questions. I was curious. I, I cared about the game. It was always on the front of my mind before anything. And, it, you know, that could have been really any sport at that time. I mean, football I liked just as much as baseball. I think baseball I just went, leaned more to because I played it. And uh, I enjoyed the, the aspects of it. So, um, But, I, I listen, I, I felt like I was going to be a coach. At, I can honestly say this at 12, 13, 14. I mean, I started a street hockey league in my neighborhood and I, I was, I, th- I guess I was more of an organizer. I think if you ask my parents, they'd say, yeah, he's an organizer for sure. So I think coaching was in my future. Just what I want to do. Teach, coach, what, one of those. Is, uh, was there a maturity then in leading people or just the organiza- organizing part? Was- I think the or- I wasn't mature. Uh, from an organizing standpoint, yes. Maturity, no. I mean, I, I wasn't, I, I don't think... You know, I, I reached a level of maturity that where I could lead people until I, you know, was at Presbyterian College. Um, but I, it, it was always part of it's all I ever wanted to do. You know, you get home from school, um, it was right up to the pond and skate. It was football, basketball, baseball. It was just one of one of those four sports. So when I sometimes I watch you over when you're coaching third base mm-hmm. and you. You have this energy about you right mm-hmm. before the pitch. You're mm-hmm. anticipating it. You're kind of in the starting blocks. Mm-hmm. You look like somebody who could, at the drop of a hat, go out there and play. Mm. At what point in your career do you not miss playing anymore? Uh, that was probably into my Presbyterian days because even when I was at Presbyterian as a head coach there, I was age 24, 25, 26. I was still heavily involved in intramural basketball and doing other things, so I was competing. But I think there's a time where you, it starts to leave you, and I think it's a more of that time where you go, it's time to grow up. You know, it's time to just watch others play and, and kind of orchestrate their movements. So I, th- I think it was at the end of my Presbyterian tenure, and certainly when I went to Clemson because I felt like I had way more responsibility. Now I was in charge of recruiting for someone else's program, so I felt like if there was any extra time, I wasn't going to use... And, you know, I wasn't married at Presbyterian, so I got to do a lot of different things. But 
I think at that time I said, we, we got to do something else. What was your major in college? It was physical education and then um, took some minors in business. Uh, I had a minor in business and then I, uh, my master's was in sports administration. Okay. You, I would have guessed psychology was somewhere mm-hmm. in there because you have that approach. Mm-hmm. Where did that part come? Is that just from reading books over the years or coaching functions? Where does that come from? Uh, I'm not a big reader. It's that's that. When you say psychology, it's probably the part that I enjoy the most right now because I like reading people and I like, especially young people. I like reading them. I like talking to them. the 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 psychology part to me has always been very interesting, and it's something that uh, I'm not going to say I'm good at, uh, but I would say it's it's the part that I I do do understand. If if you said if you had to do it all over again, what you do? I'd say I'd study psychology because mm-hmm. that to me is very intriguing right now. How how people work, how they function, how they function under fire, uh, what they do, what they do. Uh, and that's you know if I if I was going to Patriots training camp, if I was going you know any time I talk to Brad Stevens about what he's doing with the Celtics, it's never about the game of basketball. It's more about okay, how do you handle Kyrie here? How do you handle your young players, Jason Tatum here? Those are the things that I want to know because I'm curious to see how coaches communicate and interact with their players in order to get them to reach the level that they want to reach as a player and then they want to reach as a team. So when you're recruiting kids, do you have a certain, psychologically speaking, do you have a certain type? Like, I can work with this type of kid or this type of kid, but I can't work with that type of kid. I think the older you get, I think the more knowing you are of that. And I I would say that we have those conversations with Mike. Mike's way smarter than I am, Mike Baxter, at the same age. He's 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 very in tune with what he's looking for. I, I was not like that. I was more towards, at least at Clemson, I was geared more towards an athlete and someone that was skilled. But in today's world, I think you have to be really in tune with what type of person you're getting because inevitably the person that works well here is someone that is very tied into the game of baseball but also has a passion for what they're doing outside of baseball too and can integrate both and do it with I'm not going to say ease but do it with enjoyment and if you have someone here that doesn't like team that doesn't like functioning as a group that doesn't like the academic part, and I'm not going to say that everyone here is on the high end of academics, but there are some that you can see life is a whole lot easier. And I take a guy like Stephen Scott, for instance. I mean, he's just a kid that, number one, he, he fits everything. He's tough. He'll do anything that you would want him to do. Um, he challenges himself academically, and he's down here at the field all the time. So it's just like those are the types of, and we have several like him, many like him, but I'm not going to say many, but... Um, those are the kids we're looking for. It, it seems like to me coaches from, let's say, 20, 30, 40 years ago would put kids in a certain box and coaches would approach all their players in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Um, some people would say that that's an old school way that it should be now. Uh, I have a lot of teachers in my family. Mm-hmm. Girlfriend's a teacher. Both my parents are retired school teachers. And I always ask them, you know, were there... Were these same kids, were there a lot of kids with different conditions and different ways of learning back years ago that they weren't diagnosed? Mm-hmm. Do we just understand that better now? Are kids coddled more now? 
do you do you think coaching has changed for the better now where you try to look at kids a little more individually in that way for sure I mean I think that's where teaching is headed towards as well it's it's more individual I look at how we how we function inside the program now Adam versus how we did it 10 years ago I, I look at our strength program very individualized I look at how Brownie operates with the pitchers very individualized backs and Macias and how they inter integrate with the hitters very individualized I think for me though as a as a teacher and a coach and you as a the leader of the the program it, it's more holistic for me I mean when I go into that classroom it's more about teaching a lesson that has more to do with the group themselves now how I would interact with the kids might be a little bit different um, because I understand you can't homogenize them all but there, there has to be things inside of your program that bind them together, but with that, they have to have their own personality, and you have to be willing to allow them to use their personality with constraints, you know, within within the team organization. And I, I think that's the part that, uh, you know, if I'm, I'm doing things individually with the kids, it's it's not how I treat them, but it, it's, it's just how I reach them or how I try to reach them. But to your point, I think that's how we, we try to find the ways we can connect with kids best. So coaching has evolved in a good way, then you think? I, I would def- well, I, I would hope so. Because to me, good would be as long as you're improving the environment for the people that are inside of it. If you're doing that, I think it's for the good. And at least in, I can speak for me and, and our coaches now is I've evolved through the years. I mean, I'm not doing anything close to what I was doing 10 years ago. And for that, I apologize, but I can't. You know, I can't go back. Hmm. But I certainly can look at what I'm doing now and not say, I've got it figured out, but at least I'm trying to reach the kids in a way that I think is more constructive. You took Presbyterian from NAI to Division Two, correct? At the end, yep. At the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, now if I remember, remember right, Maggie, your wife, mm-hmm recommended you for the assistant coaching job at Clemson, right? Or she mm-hmm. mentioned your name, is that right? She did. I knew Maggie, and I knew Greg, her husband, mm-hmm. and, and know him today. But uh, they were married when I was a Presbyterian, and then they left because he got the head basketball position at Western Carolina. When he was at Western Carolina, they were very close with the Leggetts, and Jack was the person, Jack was the head coach at Western Carolina, he got the job at Clemson. So he was looking for an assistant. And he was trying to hire some head coaches at other ACC schools and SEC schools. And Maggie said, why don't you just talk to that nut at Presbyterian mm. who I used to know? And, you know, she tells that story. But it, it's true. I mean, he, he did. He, he, he called me and we met in Essex Junction, Vermont, at a Lums breakfast place. And he just hired me right, right then and there in that interview. And, but it was her her connection. So obviously she saw good things in, in, in you with y'all's relationship after that, your marriage, y'all make mm-hmm. a great partnership now. Mm-hmm. Do you think Maggie could could evaluate guys that would make good coaches? Do you think she sees that? She's around coaches mm-hmm. her whole adult life. Mm-hmm. Do you think she has a has a way of doing that? Most, most yeah. She's very aware. She's very aware of a lot of the different things. And I think that's, you know, not only is she a help to me, but I think she's a help when you know, it's not when you when I go home and talk to my wife about our program. It's someone that I trust heavily because she doesn't give me. Well, first of all, she doesn't tell me what I want to hear. 
and she's she's not one of those people either that's always picking. Her support is always about the players. It's always. She's always looking at what what is best for the players. So she will disagree with me on certain things that I think that I want to do, but she also, if she knows I feel strongly about something, will also support it, even though it might not be something I agree with. But I think she definitely can feel a coach. She's a coach. She could have been a coach. She was a a tennis teacher for a long period of time. And I admire how her interaction with her own daughter when she played here at at, uh, Vanderbilt. She released the opportunity to her. And I thought, you know, what a great way to send your daughter one mile down the street and never, ever get involved with what she's doing and the conversation's never about tennis on the phone. And I thought, you know, what a what a great model I thought she was to her own daughter. Um, but, yeah, I, going back to your question, yeah, I think she definitely could do that. So there are instances where she will hear a, maybe something that goes on with a player and she will take the player's side in it as opposed to yours or tell you that you need to treat a player this way or that way. She would take a player's side in a heartbeat, but she also understands the balance of what I have to do as a decision maker. Uh, but she would definitely, I think that has helped me along the ways, along the way too, because I was, I was not bending, you know, I was, I was very, uh, you know, very straightforward in everything that I was doing. And then I think, uh, then, then along the way, I think what she did is she just challenged my abilities to loosen in areas that you're fighting over small change here. Mm-hmm. You know, it, that don't sweat the small stuff. It, just let that go. You're right. You made a reputation for yourself as a really good recruiter at Clemson. Mm-hmm. Um, did recruiting go from a little easier at Clemson to very difficult when you first got here? Yes, because we were established at Clemson, and Clemson already was established prior to, to me getting there. But um, I'll remember my first, I got a speeding ticket my first day of recruiting there, and the reason was, was as I was listening to a radio show, which I never should have been doing. It was a Clemson radio show. And there was a caller that said that he disagreed with Coach Leggett's hiring of a coach, he didn't even use my name, of a guy from an NAI school, because what would I know about a Division One player? And my foot during that time, because I was upset, went right down on the accelerator, and I got caught speeding going to the Greenville Spartanburg Airport, <laughs> and uh, got a ticket. So, um, I guess the, the my 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 point is is I went into that a little bit intimidated, but because I was, I just. I, I was relentless, I think, in terms of my, my time to do it. I just said, I'm not coming off the road. I was out one day, the first year Maggie and I were dating, I was on the road for 40-plus days, and I just wouldn't come home because I knew that I, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to get it right. I'm not going to give Clemson an opportunity to dip. So when you get to Vanderbilt, you're selling a program that has not won that much. The facilities you were still trying to get in place. Mm-hmm. Was that frustrating, or did you kind of know what you were walking into? Because you, you, you weren't going to bring in first-round draft picks here from day one. No, although Roy Mewborn did. I mean, he brought in Jeremy Sowers and mm-hmm. Mark Pryor, who I never got to coach Mark until I went to the USA team, so I did get to spend time with him. But, um, yeah, we were, there were a lot of no's, and uh, thankfully I had a guy that was just as aggressive as, as I felt I was, and that was Eric Backage at Michigan. 
and I thought he, you know, he was just like a German Shepherd. He was gone. He was he was on the look for the the player that would say yes, and he would not take no for an answer. So we did get some kids early uh, that we may have not gotten had we not been persistent. But uh, and Derek Johnson was helpful too. I mean, he was such a good evaluator and. He liked recruiting, but Eric was the lead person in that area, so he really took ownership of that. Well, fast forward now, and mm-hmm. usually the the program rankings puts Vanderbilt at one or two or maybe three in the country in overall programs. Your recruiting classes have been one or two most of the last five, six years. Mm-hmm. Do you, you know, there's a thought that Alabama football, if they want a player, mm-hmm. with a few exceptions, they can get them. Kentucky basketball, the same thing. If you want a player, do you usually get them? Um, no. Well, I, I would never feel that way. Um, I'm sure there's there's times where other people may think that, but I would never think that way. But I do think there's we do because of the certain kid that we're going after. I do think we have a pretty good chance to get certain kids that have that idea of academic and athletic, and they want to package them together. At that point right there, I, I think, number one, there's not a ton of options like that. I mean, Duke certainly has got a good program. Rice, um, you, you know, the, there's there's some, some good programs, but in Stanford, obviously. But I, I feel like, at least in our area, we've got a good chance to get that academic athletic kid. Now, because of the success we've had over the years, you know, we're, we're seeing just as, as much as a baseball a place to develop your skills as we are academic to develop your mental skills. So from that standpoint, I feel like we have a good opportunity. I tend to think there's something to be learned in the other sports of how baseball has. You can come out of high school or you Mm got to come here and play three years. Mm -hmm. Uh, But aside from that, you know, if you look in college basketball, there's the handlers, so to speak, AAU guys, the shoe companies, Mm -hmm. a lot of can be sleaziness behind the scenes. Football kind of has that with some of the seven-on-seven seven coaches. Not all of them, obviously, but you mm-hmm. you can have that. Baseball seems to be more transparent. You have advisors. There's open discussion, and the kid decides, I'm going to go here or I'm going to go there. Is there something to be learned in baseball that there's not a lot of backdoor dealings that the other sports have to deal with? Uh, could be learned. I'm not sure those two sports would ever move in that direction, maybe because of the amount of money and because of the, you know, in basketball, it was, you know, the shoe companies had a lot to do with moving players in certain directions. Baseball obviously doesn't have that, but we do have advisors, and there are advisors who do move specific kids in certain directions, not all of them. Uh, so we have that element too. Um, football is a, probably a different beast. I, I think what what is seems to be pretty transparent, pretty clean right now in baseball is if you commit somewhere, then you typically end up signing with that school. You don't have people backdooring other schools. If they do, it's only because that person has in his mind made up that he's going to decommit and he's told other people I'm open again. But typically in our sport, it's... Uh, it's we're very usually very respectable about each other and i think baseball is it coaches understand that if a high school player comes to campus and they're thinking about going into the draft you've got to gauge whether that kid is going to go or not and how serious he is how accurate usually are you 
about first impression if a kid really wants to come to college or if he wants to go in the draft? That's a great question. Um, we're not always accurate, and the reason being, Adam, is because sometimes when we commit a kid in the 10th grade, he sees Vanderbilt as a professional team. And then as he matures and grows, and then the attention from professional evaluators becomes more intense, then he looks at that situation as more pleasing. And and then the kids that end up coming here, I would say, are the kids that have been made to think that they just need to be patient, and it will reoccur again, and it will happen again, and will happen at, at a higher level. But ironically, the kids that have come here have not been kids from money. You know, I look at the, all the kids that have turned down significant money to come to school here. They actually are kids that come from lower income families, which is very ironic because you would think it was the other way. Sure. Now, I can also tell you that some of the kids that have signed here have been from families that have. They have, they have means. So it, that part has been hard to figure out. But at the end of it, it's usually a strong parent figure that says, my child is going to school. And I think the Rockers were that way. You yeah. know, Lou always said, you know, I said at the banquet the other night, but she always said, Coach, I don't know what you hear, but my kid's coming to school. And I used to kid with her. I said, Lou, you know how many times I've been told that in my, my career? She goes, I know, but it's different here. And it was different. You know, she felt strong. But Tracy did too. You know, Tracy's a... You know, he's a he's a coach. He's been everywhere. He's been a professional coach and college coach. And I think at the end of it, he just wanted his kid in an environment where he was going to grow mentally because he already knew he was physically going to be, you know, have a chance to be good. Uh, but, you know, the mental part of it is the part that's going to lead him to do special things. Well, on that, let's look at this here real quick. Kumar yeah. Rocker is the top-rated right-hander in the freshman class nationally. You have a lot of guys that are rated really high. Mm-hmm. How do you mix... You've got seniors on this team, which you don't always have. Mm-hmm. And you've got returning starters. You get your rotation back, and then you have this injection of all these really good freshmen. How do you how do you shake those up and make it work? Talk about it early. I mean, you talk about the fact that you know you have to separate years, understanding that last year was last year, and there might have been some people that fit in certain situations. But because of what happened this year, with seven seniors coming back and a group of freshmen that came, and some of them that did come, we expected not to, our roster automatically got better. It yeah. got better. Now, what you know, what that looks like at the end of the year in terms of wins, but it got better from a competition standpoint. So internally, the roster's not the same. So if a young kid looked at himself and said, well, you know, I was fighting for a mid-range spot last year, and I had one, but now I find myself maybe four or five slots beyond behind that this year. Well, that's just because of the influx of bodies that came in. Very difficult for a coaching staff to maneuver because, you know, if you knew what you knew prior to, you would never get beyond 35. Right. 35 is a very, that number's fine. And now we're at 40. That's but I, I look at it as five difficult conversations that you're going to have to have with someone else's son, and and those aren't fun. Now, they can certainly grow through that. A.J. Franklin and Kiambu Fentress did. Uh, but at the same time, you know, when you have to pull a back guy back for a year because, hey, listen, the roster's improved, you're going to have to be patient. 
And I told the kids this the other day. I said, listen, as long as you're willing to be patient in this process, I think it can work for all of them. I really believe that. But kids have to be patient. If they're not, then they're going to say, I want to play sooner than what he's telling me, so I'm going to leave. And I get that too, but I really would, I, I want them to be here. I don't want this to turn into a situation where it's, Garbage in, garbage out. I don't want that. I want kids to develop here at Vanderbilt. Do you care? You've got a number of guys that play multiple positions. Mm-hmm. Do you, if, if a guy's saying, I could be That's here in the outfield or I could be here in the infield, do you care what the kid really, really wants to do? I, I do care, but at the same time, like David Macias, he wanted to play shortstop here at Vanderbilt. And... He was the best second baseman we had in the program that particular when he started out. But the second baseman could only play second base. So I said, David, you really help our team by moving to center field. And I think that's the part where when you look at this program in August, September, and October, that's the part in the classroom that I'm trying to get through so those conversations become easier in January and February. Because in, in August, September, and October, it has nothing to do with baseball. It's just about how to almost rewire yourself to understand that in order for me to reach my full potential, I, I actually have to buy into this mode of doing things for a group of people besides myself. And I have to make some decisions that are going to benefit the group. But down the road, Coach has shown me through other examples, that this will soon benefit me too. So, yeah, I, I, th- I have those conversations, but I am willing to listen to kids about, I really want to play here because I think I can help this team more. All right, so you got some tough decisions in the lineup card, and yeah. really it starts with the roster, pitching First. rotation, yeah, yeah. And, and all the above. But mm-hmm. uh, it's a tough job. Uh, good deal. Tim, appreciate you talking to us, and uh, good luck this season. Thanks, Adam. So, you know, we, we condensed that as much as we could into some good stories. And uh, I, I promise you we will go back to Tim Corbin, back to the well in the future, because there's, there's a million others he could share. But uh, he's got a team, again, that could, be, that could win a national title this year, certainly could get to Omaha again. And, uh, you know, Tim's got, uh, he's got a tough task ahead of him of mixing all the, all the talents on that team. But um, I, I see a team that can go pretty far. We don't know. Don't know that now, but we certainly will as the season goes along. They uh, they start off this this week in the MLB Collegiate Baseball Tournament. the The opener will be on the MLB Network. They play Virginia, Cal State Fullerton, and TCU. Those are all perennial national title contenders. So. We'll know a little bit of what this team has right off the bat. Pretty good tests. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea for having an event like that, too, with top programs early to kind of get people thinking about it. One parting thought for me, you know, we have been talking a lot about Malcolm Turner, and, of course, he's the new AD on the job, athletics director on the job. Uh, and a lot of it, a lot of the discussion around that is, you know, which program needs to be fixed, how, the stadium, all these things that he has to figure out and coaches evaluate. He does have a model program here. Like to base everything else on, you know, you, I don't, I don't know that you can build a program much better than Corbin has with Vanderbilt baseball. It's not like he came in and it was preordained that Vanderbilt baseball was going to be a great program. So that's probably a great resource for Malcolm Turner as well. Yeah, and I, I made the comment to Malcolm Turner last week that Tim Corbin is a guy you'll get along with because I see a lot of the same attributes and how they communicate with people between Turner and Corbin. And yeah, that, that, that's a good model because they had to come here, make something out of the stadium, build more facilities, get that get that uh, program to where they can recruit, which, you know, Tim talked about some in, in the interview there. And yeah, if, if 
that that's a revenue sport that they built into a national title contender, and it was not that to that uh, status when when Tim got there. I would imagine there's going to be some pretty good conversations between those two guys, and actually they already have had some conversations. And Malcolm Turner likes a lot of information, and Tim Corbin could give him plenty. Absolutely. So there you have it. Talk with Tim Corbin, and there'll be much more Vanderbilt baseball to come. Thanks for listening to Breaking Down the Doors. 